the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, does it matter what we call today's holiday? And then what is the antidote to anxiety about the future? You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on Aubrey. A rainy, a dark... A rainy, kind summer. of scary Monday out there. I'm like, a little nervous we're going to have to run to the basement of the studio. I think if people just hear like dead air, it's just you staring over my shoulders outside. <laughs> There's lightning behind you Tornado and it's a little watches. freaky. Yes, Man, we are so, praying everyone is okay. Yeah, if you're out there in your car, I drive safely, but we're glad that you are joining us today. Let me start with this. Uh, there's many reasons that this has moved from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples mm-hmm. Day. And uh, you might be out there going, I don't care what they call it. Just give me a day <laughs> off of work right. and of school. But, Aubrey, let me ask you this question. Does it matter what we call it today? Does oh. it matter whether we call it Columbus Day or Indigenous People Day or whatever else, and why or why not? I feel like I'm about to make all of the anti-woke folks really mad. So I'm sorry, everyone who loves like Christopher Columbus. I know, this. thanks, Brian. Just yes. sent me. I'm so sorry to all the people who love Christopher Columbus. Are there people who love Christopher Columbus? Yeah, there are tons of people who love okay. the, the Italian man. Okay. I Here's the problem, is that he didn't actually discover America. America was already (laughs) discovered by the people, the native indigenous folks who lived here. So Mm. by changing the name, we're just honoring that truth. I think it's okay to say that Christopher Columbus, as an explorer, found this new land. People already lived there. Let's know the truth about did he murder those people and commit genocide or Mm -hmm. did he make friends with those people and build relationships? I think that's that's very debatable in history. And maybe there's a different day when we can talk about the day Columbus landed Mm. on America. That is different than discovering. And really, it's the doctrine of discovery that has some problems because it justifies a lot of colonization, Mm -hmm. captivity, Mm -hmm. abuse of indigenous peoples. Uh, and uh, he was just a bad dude, and so I think so. So that so, but not everyone be, well, thinks that. Okay, but here's the interesting question. I had this talk with my daughter today. It's nice okay. when your kids start to get older. And you I know it's like, not hey, fun. Let me have this conversation. I asked my daughter. Let's let's pretend that it was accepted that he had some uh, issues yeah. that that are not to be admired. Right. Let's say that. Right. Uh, does somebody's? All right, I'm going to hit you with a big one here. Mm. Does that matter when you're celebrating their accomplishments or what they've done? So we've got presidents that we can look back at uh-huh. who have uh, less than admirable, Been terrible, personal, uh, whether it be slavery or promiscuity, adultery, whatever else it might be. Right. Uh, you know, we have pastors. We have. Mm-hmm. I know that's a different one. OK, but we have some of the people that we esteem most, even for their moral views who have come down. Here's the question, Aubrey. Should it matter when you're disco- you know, we, we're celebrating Columbus, yeah. finding America, not Columbus the guy. Does it matter? Uh, and then I'll, I'll take a run at it because uh, I'm putting the hard ones on you today. Yeah, I mean, I yes, I do think it matters because I think integrity and truth matter. And I think the way we honor other people matter. This is, I mean, you know, this is, I think, a question about even like Michael Jackson. Can we listen to Michael Jackson's music knowing what we know about him being an alleged ongoing, repeated criminal pedophile. Mm-hmm. Probably not. Can we keep reading Ra- Ravi Zacharias's books knowing that he allegedly abused and raped women around the globe? Probably not. But this is constantly that conversation. But we love Michael Jackson's songs. We love Ravi Zacharias. So you would so, stop listening to Michael Jackson's songs? So I have. Okay, I don't think I would. And w- anytime the songs come on, I change them. But here's the thing. I love Michael 
Michael Jackson's music. <laughs> I love Michael. So this is a, but I'm not consistent in this. So like I'm sure. giving that as an example. There are lots of places you could point to me and you could be like, well, but Aubrey, you drive on the road and there are corrupt, you know, construction workers that made their, yes, I am an inconsistent human <laughs> being, but I do think integrity and lifestyle matters, especially when we're celebrating at a national yeah. level. I do think that's a little more consistency than you're giving yourself credit for. Okay, thanks, you would, Brian. You would turn off the Michael Jackson you know, songs. So I don't good. think I would. I think I'd still watch reruns of the Cosby show. I mean, and I can't that, listen but. to R. Kelly. Or, or, what's his name? His name is R. R. Kelly. I can't listen to him. You know, I can't do it. Yeah, and so the Wall Street Journal actually wrote an interesting opinion piece that says, celebrate Columbus's achievements. We should acknowledge his flaws, but his treatment by the left, that's their view here, is reminiscent of communist propaganda. So you could check that out at the Wall Street Journal. But Aubrey, I guess I, I would go a little bit, maybe not the communist propaganda route, <laughs> but I think I would go down that route of going, you know what? Nobody's, I'm not saying this about Columbus, I'm saying this in general. Nobody's perfect. So let's celebrate achievements and... Not not or and give the full narrative mm, of their fallenness. That's good. Yeah, that's of fair. Who they are. Mm-hmm. That goes for uh, President Trump, President Clinton, President Kennedy, Martin fair. Luther King. Yes. Like all these people. Yeah. Let's have a conversation about, you know what? We can celebrate what they did here. Yeah. Uh, but we can also remind you that they were not flawed a human beings. They were flawed yeah. human beings. Yeah. And there's a teaching point. There's some more context to that. Now, as it pertains to today, I would encourage people to go out and read why it's been changed to Indigenous People Day. I, I think I'm not usually one who's like, oh, let's change this right. for this. Let's tear down this. I do think there's a lot of merit to this one. Yes, <laughs> that, yes, yes. The man, at least historically, seems to have been more of a savage than we we want to We would encourage you to on. go read that. But I, I would a much bigger point is to say this. I think when it comes to history... Uh, we want history to be accurate, but we also want to be honest about those who have accomplished things, who mm. have done the history. I don't think we need to whitewash things away from our kids. Yep. And is that we could talk about who was this person as a person without all everyone yelling cancel culture or this right, or that. right. We can have uh, the hard conversations because I think that complexity is helpful. Well, whatever you call today, happy Indigenous People Day, happy Columbus Day, happy day off. Hope it's been going well for you. Aubrey, coming up next, I want to talk about a tweet that I read uh, about the antidote to anxiety Mm. about the future. So many of us worry about the future. Right. What am I going to do? What's coming next? You and I, even off air, we're talking about some of our anxieties about the future. Yes. How do we fight those anxieties? I want to have that conversation next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Do you consider yourself an anxious person? I generally do not consider myself an anxious person. I don't struggle with anxiety. I don't tend to like stay up at night worrying. I, the funny thing is, I'm an anxious sleeper. So if you, um, I'm sound asleep. If Kevin comes into our bedroom after I've fallen asleep, he literally has to walk into the bedroom going, it's Kevin, it's Kevin, because I will wake up going, who's that? Like, I freak out every time on him. Does he ever mess with you and be Um, like, like, it's an intruder, it's an intruder. He usually usually does not. Our kids know they have to walk all the way around the bed and go wake up dad because mom will freak out. So Really? Yes, it's very bizarre. So I am... I. I, I'm not a worrier. I don't like stay up at night going over my to do list. But if you wake me up, I freak out on you. Oh, that's it. That's yeah. That what about you? Are, are you? An, it's not that I you. don't have anxieties in general and worry about things, but it, it doesn't tend to control me. What about you? I think I'm increasingly a worrier mm. uh, and not clinically. I'm not on medication for yeah. anxiety. Like I understand when we speak of anxiety, there's different levels here. And some of you, it's much more of a clinical diagnosis in which you need to be medicated. Like, I get that. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about waking up already feeling a little bit anxious, mm. like, oh, what's coming today? Or, yeah. you know, just um, during the day, kind of, uh, you know, who's going to, you know, what's going to happen here? Like, I, I I, don't think I used to be an anxious person, but I do think that I've got it in me uh, increasingly. And, I, and so... I bring that up to say I was reading a tweet of somebody you said that you know. Her name is Je- uh, Jen Wilkin. You said yeah, author. she's an author with Crossway. Are you with Crossway? No, I am not. Okay, I'm with Nav Press, but I, I happen to so. know that about her because okay. I like her books a lot. She's okay. a great writer. 
that someone's mad at me out there that I, I mentioned you and Crossway. Like that's Navpress, Tyndale, Aubrey Sampson, okay. not Crossway. But I like Crossway. I'm for Crossway. Do you remember uh, in Anchorman where the different <laughs> newscasts had the big big fight with the Tridents? Yes, yes. I picture there being Crossway <laughs> and Tyndale yes. and IVP and all of you guys out in a parking lot. And, uh, We're having like a, a street gang fight. Be awesome. Well, here's what Jen Wilkin wrote. She wrote, uh, this is just a tweet. She tweeted this. Uh, The antidote to anxiety about the future is not to discern the future, but to remember the past. Hmm. Instead of straining your gaze forward, look over your shoulder and rehearse God's faithfulness to you and to all generations. I think there is such good wisdom there. But but as I read that, what what do you think about that as an antidote to anxiety, particularly anxiety about the future? Well, you know what came to mind right away is this. It's not to discern the future. I I, this weekend on Sunday, I preached on Jeremiah 29, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, the very famous verse for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord plans not to harm you, but for your good and to prosper you. But what what God is saying to the exiles just before that exiles in Babylon is um, also don't pay diviners to dream dreams mm. and to tell you about the future because those aren't from me. Those are lies. Mm. And in the same way, I, I think this is sort of that same word. Like, don't um, don't go to cultural voices. Don't go to even um, I mean, I have a I have people in my life who go to psychics don't go to psychics don't go to trying to figure out the future from diviners because that's not from the lord god's mm. very clear about that that's not from him and don't try to control the future don't even worry about it but look back at god's faithfulness over your entire life that's good remember who god is and in that way you move forward knowing okay god has always been faithful he will always be faithful yeah and <clears throat> i think the reminder Uh, What I appreciate about what she said is look back over your own life. Mm -hmm. Rehearse God's faithfulness to you. But when we stop there, I feel like uh, that could almost be insufficient where we're like, okay, maybe maybe he's been. But then instead, when we then go and then look back through the course of all of human history. Amazing. Open up your Old Testament and uh, in the Old Testament, go to the book of Judges. Right. And what's the book of Judges over and over Mm. and over again? It says uh, the Israelites turn their back on God. They screwed things up. God forgave them, welcomed them back. The Israelites <laughs> right. turned their back on God. And right. you, eventually you're just like, God, like, are we going to like just maybe at, choose somebody at any new? Point, One are of these you going to like take your hands off and walk away? Right. Right. But, but I think when we look back to his faithfulness way back at the beginning, mm-hmm. all the way through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, through the early church, yeah. through church history, uh, and then into our lives or the generation, you know, your grandparents, your parents, yes. and, and you start yes. to see the constant in that is God's faithfulness, yeah. God's goodness. You can go, okay, yeah, I've got some choppy waters coming. Yep. I've got some unknowns coming, yep. but I can I can trust that one of my unknowns is not, is God still going to be there? Yeah. That yeah. God is going to be there. And, and I, I think that picture of her. Uh, that she writes about straining your gaze mm. forward is is not what we're trying to do. I do that all the time. Like if I can just get a better picture of where our church will be in six months or yeah. where my daughter is going to college right. or where right. whatever, whatever else. Right. Will my health be good in a year? Whatever. Right. Right. You strain forward going off. Oh, I could just mm. see better. My anxiety would go away. Mm. And And I think that. A, you're never going to know, right? right? That's, we can't but, know. Only the Lord knows. But you're right. That's why there are psychics. That's mm-hmm. why these people make money. Yep. Um, but do you think practically on a day-to-day level, looking backwards at God's faithfulness, even through the scriptures, is actually helpful for you? I think it's 100% helpful. I mean, I, I think you wake up and and this is like one of those old school things to do, but count your blessings. Mm. like. Wake up, read your Bible. This morning I was just reading in Genesis. They're always digging wells, right? And they're yes. always naming them. They're always thanking God for his faithfulness. Like in your own way, dig wells to acknowledge where God has brought you, the new place that he has you now, and that he has always been faithful. And I think, Brian, you're exactly right. We do that by looking at scripture, how God has showed us his faithfulness throughout right. history. But then look at, yeah, I mean, I think it's powerful. Look at your grandparents' life, your parents' life. Look at where how God has gotten you to where you are this mm. very moment in your life. And then you go, wow, only God could write such a narrative that either life is all a happy accident or God yeah. is on the throne and in control. Yeah. And when you can see his power and his, uh, you know, 
path of weaving your life together, it just causes you to worship and have more faith and not worry as much and not be so concerned about the future. So as we close this out, what would you say to the person uh, who's sitting in their car right now thinking, mm. I am racked by anxiety? Yeah. Not, and I'm not, again, some of you are have anxiety where you need to go see a professional and you need yes. to be on medication. And There's no needing, shame in that. Do that. There is not. But I'm talking kind of. More the anxiety we've been discussing here, like, oh, you know, when's that other shoe going to drop? Yeah. Is this am I is am I going to lose my job? Is my church going to make it? All these kinds mm-hmm. of things. What would you say to that person right now, Aubrey, who is like, yeah, that's me. I don't know where to start. Uh, this discussion has been helpful, but I don't know exactly necessarily what to do with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know from Scripture that we're told that we can cast all of our cares on Jesus because he cares for us. And I think that casting image is a really strong image because you're you're literally giving it to him and then you're not taking it anymore. Yeah. Like, And I, one of the ways that I pray is I'll, like, imagine that I'm holding all of my concerns, my worries in my hands, and then I will literally physically move my hands, imagine that I'm laying them at the feet of Jesus, and then I'll say, God, can you take these for me? I'm surrendering them to you. I'm not going to pick them up again today. And if I start to, because I'm a human, if my mind starts to go there, my heart starts to go there, I'll go, oh, no, no, no. I said I wasn't going to pick this up. God, that's yours again. And you just keep surrendering to the Lord. And there's freedom in that because he's so kind and compassionate Mm. to care for our needs and our worries. Yeah, you just kind of gave a great picture of what Paul writes in Philippians. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And what's the promise? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So uh, a lot of us are worriers, and there's a lot to worry about out there right now. Uh, But we hope that this has been helpful. Remember who God has always been and his faithfulness. Well, coming up next, uh, what does it take to make an apology? When is apology legit? We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. We're going to turn our attention to another sports story. I'm doing this just for you. I watched the Bears play yesterday, and the Bears beat the Raiders yes. yesterday, which was very, very exciting. Congratulations to the Chicago Bears. But the Raiders coach, John Gruden, was all over social media and the news and even NFL.com because of a story that leaked about an email he wrote 10 years ago that included a pretty significant racial trope. And um, he made a public apology that I want us to talk about. So let's go ahead and listen to John Gruden apologizing. I'm not a racist. I don't uh, I can't. uh Tell you how sick I am. I apologize again to De, to D. Smith, um, but I feel good about who I am and what I've done my entire life. And uh, I apologize for the insensitive remarks. I had uh, no, uh, you know, I, I, I had no racial uh, intentions with those remarks at all. But um, yes, they can. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not like that at all. But I apologize. I don't want to keep addressing it. Okay, Brian. So mm-hmm. that's that's his apology. I, just uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's always hard when you listen to people publicly apologize because you don't know. And again, this was in a uh, and people can decide if this matters or not. This was in a private email written 11 years ago mm-hmm. uh, and that that came out uh, and in it, he's going to get in trouble for some other things he said of a non-racial variety as well. Yeah, uh, but it's always hard to listen to people kind of publicly apologize. I guess what I would want to know is, A, we learned that he spoke to his team. Yes. Right? You have a team where the majority of the players are African-American. You have to apologize. Yep. And most of the guys who have at least spoken about what went on in that room said he was very contrite mm-hmm. and this and that. And uh, But two, I would want to know, did he speak to DeMar Smith? Right. The guy who of whom he spoke, the NFLPA, the NFL Player Association uh, executive director. Uh, did he actually apologize to him or that's where kind of the rubber meets the road. I don't, he'll need to apologize to me, right? right? He doesn't need to apologize. Uh, and so what you ask, what is, what makes for a good apology or what, what makes yeah. an apology effective? Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the uh, red flags in an apology, I've apologized in this way before, but a red flag is if I did something to you, Aubrey, <laughs> uh, and if I said, uh, 
if you took that wrong, right, right. then I'm sorry for right. that. Uh, if, you, uh, if you misunderstood what I said. I'm like, sorry about that. If you're going to uh-huh. do that, don't apologize. Just yes. say, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not mm-hmm. going to apologize. Instead, apologies, especially in the public realm, apologies are usually meant to kind of put a fire down. Yeah, like put kind of a PR fire down and move forward. Right. But but you'd, you'd want an apology to be like, hey, you know what? Even if you're going to begin it with, I didn't mean for that to be hurtful, but I, I clearly was. So I'm sorry. Right. Or, you know what? John Gruden goes on earlier to say, I, this was like a bad time of my life. I was struggling. Mm-hmm. Does that make it OK? Right. No, no, but it provides some context in the end. I guess here's what I would say to people. Let your sorry be your sorry mm. and uh, allow other people to read into it or this and that. What they will and what they won't. When, when our apologies are more for, um, you know, to, to kind of make everything all right, kind of, you know, with everybody else, mm-hmm. to kind of quench the fire a little bit, then, you know, why bother? And so I'm sure this story won't go away. We're used to it. You know, I, I think back to. Uh, you remember when President Clinton got got the whole Monica Lewinsky and those there was a gr- a many, many articles written about his quote unquote apologies. And what did that look like? And I remember thinking to myself, he just needs to apologize to his wife. <laughs> he just needs right, to, right. Although, right. although public figure, public apology, I get that as well. So anyway, to answer your question, I think what makes for an effective apology, and this is going to sound really basic, is some authenticity, is some actual contrition. Uh, and if you not, if you're not contrite, if you don't think you did anything wrong, then even in the midst of uh, blowback, uh, don't apologize if you're not sorry. So I, I, I will say the only thing that really bothered me about this is him saying, I didn't mean anything racial. There's no racism in me. This wasn't racist. I think I just wish he would have said this was racist. This was racial. I shouldn't have done it. I apologize. Mm-hmm. That I think would have made it a lot more contrite for me because then he at least owned what happened to me he's defending himself while apologizing i think that's not a good apology you you just need to say you know what and i mean let's be honest do any of us have no racism in us i I think that's just not true like let's just be honest about the fact that because we are sinners we happen to unless we're very very mindful we happen to have racism in us it's not something to be proud of. It's something to ask for forgiveness for, yeah. ask for the Lord to transform. So, I, I mean, you know, John Gruden's not a post uh, pastor or a, I don't know if he's a follower of Jesus or not, but I wish he would have just said, yep, I really messed up. Yep, that was racist. Now, that was 11 years ago. I would never talk like that now, but I did. It was wrong. I'm so sorry. That bothers me. I felt like that wasn't a good apology for that reason. But I think you're right. What ultimately matters, did he apologize to Smith? Did they have a one-on-one conversation? Have they reconciled? That ultimately matters. Let me read you uh, DeMar Smith's response. He says, this is not the first racist comment that I've heard. Probably not be the last. This is a thick skin job for someone with dark skin, just like it always has been for many people who look like me and work in corporate America. You know, people are sometimes saying things behind your back that are racist, just like you see people talk and write about you using thinly coded and racist language. He goes on and let me just share this and then we can move forward. But he says racism like this comes from the fact that I'm at the table as they are and they don't think someone who looks like me belongs. Smith says, I'm sorry my family has to see something like this. But I would rather they know I will not let it define me. Yeah. What do you think about that? There's clearly pain there. Yeah. Uh, there's clearly pain there. And and that's too bad. So hopefully this could be a teaching point. But what I guess I'd end it with this, Aubrey, uh, because it could be easy. And you hear these stories to just kind of be like, well, I would never do that. Mm. But we all do things that we yep. need to apologize for. What would you uh, uh, what's the power of, of a legitimate sorry? Like what's yeah. what's, what's the power in that? Oh. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know that there's much more powerful than a legitimate s- sorry, because it really breaks hatred. It breaks division and it is the first step in reconciliation. Now, the person that you've offended has the choice not to forgive you. But I think it is so humble and so beautiful to admit. I mean, we're all human. We hurt each other. So to say, I am so, so sorry that I hurt you. And and I will take on whatever debt I owe you. Yeah. I'm going to take that on because Jesus has taken that on for me. 
in that way becomes a beautiful example of who Jesus is, honestly. Yeah. But yeah. I do think you're right. It is not a good apology to say, I'm so sorry you got hurt by what yes. I did. Or yes. I'm so sorry you're offended. Or, no, no, no. You say, I'm so sorry I offended you. I'm. So- Will you forgive me? That's another part of apology that's really important. Yes. I'm so sorry that I hurt you. Will you forgive me? And the reason you know that this is important uh, or that there's a certain way to apologize, try try it next time. Next time you do something or your spouse is mad at you, uh, apologize to your spouse with, I'm sorry that you feel that way. <laughs> Let me know not, how that goes. Definitely does not go over well. All right. Well, we'll see how this story continues to unfold and we'll see if the bears keep going Uh, in their winning streak. That's not the takeaway there. Oh, come on. (laughs) Come on, Brian. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about how one local Chicagoland church is stepping up to help Afghan refugees and how you and I can get involved. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad that you're with us today. One of the things that Brian and I love talking about, we love having our friends from World Relief on the show. We love talking about how the church can step up and help refugees. And right now, uh, Afghan refugees are beginning to be resettled, some in the Chicagoland area. There's a church just down the street from me, Brian, a church called Emmanuel Presbyterian, which is stepping up specifically to help some of these Afghan refugees. And let me share with you some of what they're doing. Uh, There's an article about this church at religionnews.com. It says for Emmanuel, part of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, that commitment to help is inspired by God's biblical commands Mm. to Israel to be sensitive to the sojourner and the wanderer among you, because that's who you were when you were in Egypt. Uh, They say they recognize they're so blessed. We're in a position of advantage. And so when people come here and don't have anything, we respond out of love and compassion And so World Relief, they partnered with World Relief to begin putting together welcome kits to give to some of these Afghan families as they enter in and try to find new homes here in the States. I think this is such a beautiful example of Mm -hmm. what the church can be. Yeah. Uh, Were you inspired by the story at all, Brian? Yeah, I continue to be, um, you know, we we can get in the debates. We have Matthew Sorens on often. Uh, you You can get lost in the debates about... How many uh, refugees should come? What should America's mm-hmm. role be? What do we do that you can lose sight of the fact that these are real people, right? right? And uh, the government is the one that's going to need to make the decisions about how many. But then uh, I think what we've often heard from Matthew Sorens, uh, but also what this church is doing beautifully there in Warrenville, I believe it was, is how can we as the church be the hands and feet yeah, of Jesus to exactly. those who have been let in by our government, mm-hmm. to the ones the government says, Okay, this is how many we're going to let in. So how can it be the church? It's it's a reminder, Aubrey. Um, it's the call on the church to uh, uh, to be there for the least of these, the forgotten, the refugee, yeah. the single mom, the other. Like, like, these are the people that the church is supposed to be most set up for and looking for. Right. Sadly, that's not often the case. It's, it's a lot easier to talk than it is to do. And mm. I know I feel that in my own life yeah. as well. Uh, but but what I love about this article is you've got some Wheaton College profs and other people from this church going, th- there's some things that we can do. And so we kind of, you know, we said, OK, the, these people are going to need our help. Here's yep. what we can do. You go get you get hooked up with an organization like World Relief and, um, you know, it can be time consuming and other things. But I think it's being who Jesus has called us to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can go to worldrelief.com if you want to help out or have your church help out find out how your church could gather and create and um, give some of these welcome kits. And I'm not going to read you the entire list, but some of the items that are needed for these families as they um, make their home a new home are just tangible items, sugar, flour, rice, toilet brushes. I mean, things that we don't think about because they feel so commonplace to us. But these Afghan refugees need things like mixing bowls and dishcloths. And I mean, what a what a beautiful way. Toothpaste, like things mm-hmm. things like that, that... Um, the church could gather, create some of these welcome kits, partner with World Relief if you go to their website, worldrelief.org. And I don't know, there's something kind of fun about this, especially coming out of the the coronavirus and like, how can we get our hands, um, be, be the hands and feet yeah. of Jesus again? This is a very, very practical way to bless another person like you were saying And Brian, let me just ask you a pastoral question Mm -hmm. about helping refugees, because I do think we can get caught up, like you were saying, in in some of the 
political debates. Yeah. And sometimes that can keep us because we don't think refugees should be here. That keeps us from loving people. Mm. Um, what What's our posture as followers of Jesus in that conflict? Uh, that's really good. I think the ultimately um, we want to have, uh, we want to err on the side of love and compassion. Mm, yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that the debates don't matter. It doesn't mean that none of it does matter. All of those things matter. But I think as, uh, as Christians, uh, we want to err on the side of love and compassion. Uh, and because that's what we see throughout scripture, right? Like what, what would Jesus's move have been with refugees yeah, right now? I good. think there's gotta be love, uh, and compassion. And so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's what I would want to say. What do you think it is? I don't think many people are. I, I think people would disagree uh, about the policy, mm-hmm. but I don't think anybody it would say, yeah, the church shouldn't help. Christians shouldn't help people coming in legally and doing this and that. Uh, so what? why don't we do it? Like, why is this yeah. church so different that they're getting an article written about? Right. Them? Why is this not every church? And don't just put on churches, individuals yeah. out there. What's, what's, what are the barriers for us? What stops us? I mean, us? I think there's a few things. One, I, I think it's probably fear. I mean, let's be honest. Like, we're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of people who don't, if we're being honest, mm-hmm. uh, who don't speak our language. We're afraid of what that will mean. We're afraid of the time it'll take and what it might require from us emotionally. Like, there's a, probably a little bit of selfishness in our fear as well. But I think what's so beautiful about um, what this church is saying is that for them, this was inspired by God's biblical commands. Mm. And so sometimes I wonder if we aren't biblically literate enough or don't have a wide enough theology mm. that helps us understand that this is actually part of God's heart. God yeah. has always had a heart for the immigrant, for the sojourner, for the strangers in the strange land. And therefore, as God's ambassadors, yeah. we are also meant to have that heart and also meant to love people in action. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. That's this right. is that connection between our faith and our works right here. And so, again, I mean, you know, we go to worldrelief.org. There are other organizations that you can go to. Bethany Christian Services is another one. Church World Service is another one. Episcopal Migration Ministries is another one. There are all kinds of Christian church-based or godly-based organizations that are helping resettle refugees that you can be a part of now and just explore. I think yeah. sometimes it, we can, um, we fill in the gap with relationship. And once we actually get to know refugee families, right, right. hear their stories, see, oh, these are real people in pain and in fear, then that removes some of that, that fear and that distance we might otherwise put up. Yeah, and I think uh, if... This would be a weird way to put it because, uh, but I was going to say, if, if, you know, refugee resettlement's not your past, your thing, I would say, where is your heart drawn to the least of these, right? Hmm. Maybe we talk a lot about abortion. Like, yeah, maybe it is for the, uh, the single mom and the unborn. Okay. Well then get involved with something, somebody put your money and your time somewhere. Maybe it's with. Uh, special needs kids. Maybe it's with whatever else it might be. You can list the right. list could keep going. Right. The hard part is that we often just become. I think the struggle for us, Aubrey, is, and I, I'm guilty as charged on this, is life gets really busy. We get self centered. Uh, self centered sounds bad. We get self focused. No, we do. We do. Yeah. Uh, and it, you could just lose sight of the needs out there. Yeah. And nobody goes. I don't want to help people. Right. It's just, you know what? I need my money and I need my time. And yeah. I, it's all spoken for. I'm tired. For I want to watch Ted Lasso at the end there of the you day. Go. There yeah. you go. And so we just kind of get stuck. So I think the takeaway for me is to ask people, just give it some thought. Where are your passions going towards? Where can you take a step in to being part of the solution rather than talk is important, but but we don't want to end on talk. So yeah. whether it's abortion, whether it's refugees, whether it's whatever else it might be, where can you step in? Yeah, that's good. Let me, let me finish by sharing one other moment from this article that I thought was so beautiful. Bambi Penny, a member of Emanuel Presbyterian, has tutored refugees and immigrants applying for U.S. citizenship at their church after receiving training from World Relief. And she first volunteered to tutor after so many things were said during the 2016 presidential election and its aftermath that seemed to be denigrating people who are valuable to the U.S., she said. So she wanted to do something positive in response. And then she says it fit into what she takes away from reading the Bible about caring for the world and everyone in it. This is a quote, and we'll end with this. We often in our country can ignore many things because we're not experiencing it ourselves. 
But when you come face to face with mm-hmm. it, you've got to make a decision about whether you're going to be part of the solution or not. And I think that's a good that's a question word. for all of us. Well, stick around. We are joined by one of our great friends of the show, Karen Swallow Pryor. She's here to chat about a new article that she wrote at Religion News Service called Beauty is the Extravagance that Makes Us Human. You are not going to want to miss that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled today because we are joined by friend of the show, Karen Swallow Pryor. She's the research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's the author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, among a lot of other books and articles as well. And we're joined by Karen today to talk about an article that she wrote at Religion News Service called Beauty is the Extravagance that Makes Us Human. Karen, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Karen, for our listeners who may not have heard you on before or may not be familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am, as you said, a professor, research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, so I teach literature, I teach culture, um, I write, and just kind of try to weave it all together, uh, you know, in in my profession and in my life, and uh, part of that is what came out in the RNS column, and writing about, about beauty and just how important or how important that should be in our lives. Yeah, and Karen, it's great to have you on again. And you say humans' ability to appreciate beauty reflects our nature as being made in the image of God. I would just love for you to unpack that. How is it our, that our ability to appreciate beauty says something about our nature? Well, you know, I if, you, if anyone knows anything about me and follows me on social media, you know I'm an animal lover. That's right. And I, especially <laughs> my dogs. I love my dogs. But this is one of the things that, that I just marvel at, as intelligent and um, spirited and loving as animals can be, um, they don't appreciate beauty. They don't comprehend mm. beauty. They don't look at the sunset and 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 notice how beauty, beautiful it is. And even though animals are beautiful and they, they create beautiful things like a bird's nest and or their songs, that's just built into them in a way that it's not like they can consciously reflect on the beauty and notice mm. the beauty and, and yeah. think about making beautiful things. Mm. So this really is a quality that is unique to us as human beings, and of course, because our Creator God is the is a cre- the capital C Creator mm-hmm. of capital B beauty and mm-hmm. the source of all beauty, then of course, our our capacity to see and create beauty in human ways is a reflection of being made in His image. Mm, I love that so much. And Karen, let me just step back a little bit, because we we use this phrase a lot, the image of God or the Imago Dei. And for people who may not be familiar with that phrase, what what does that even mean? Well, of course, in the creation account in Genesis, the Bible says that we were made in God's image. And that actually, the question that you just asked is one that that we could ponder and think about (laughs) for hours or days or weeks or maybe our whole lives, because... Just the idea of being in, in the image of God, I mean, obviously it means something more than just being a physical reflection of Him the way that a mirror mm. reflects an image. Yet at the same time, we know that because God became human in the form of Christ, in the form of a human being, there is a sense in which our physical bodily humanity is a reflection of God. So we can't really separate out the the physical aspect of our being created, whether male or female, in the image of God, or also that sort of more philosophical or metaphysical understanding mm-hmm. that we are in, made in His image because we are we are moral creatures. We have souls that will be eternal or mm-hmm. can be with Him forever. There are just so many ways that we reflect God, our Creator, in ways that in a unique, unique way to all of creation. Um, he made it all, and yet human beings are uniquely made in His image. Yeah, and Karen, we live in such a busy time. We have so much hecticness in our lives, right? Like, our lives are kind of in 140-character tweets, and that's kind of how we live our lives. And That feels like it stops us from even recognizing the beauty around us. I wonder, 
What do you do in order to kind of maybe disconnect and in order to kind of sit in God's beauty and reflect on God's beauty? What are some of the things that you do that maybe other people could pick up? Well, the disconnecting is certainly hard, and again, if anyone knows anything about me, they know that I'm, you know, I'm on social media a lot, and so I struggle with that disconnect like anyone else does, but I also um, take time out um, almost every day to run, even though I'm not a good or fast runner, mm. but and I live in the country, so I'm able to enjoy nature. Um, I just spent a week teaching an intensive where I was inside all day mm. uh, for a whole week. And then when I came home, I just spent hours out on my porch mm. <laughs> in the outdoors. Even though I was doing work, I'm just outdoors listening to the birds, um, looking at the flowers that are on my porch. Um, there's so many ways that we can intentionally put spots of beauty wherever we live. You might not live in the country like I do or live where you can be outside in October, like in Virginia, <laughs> um, but we can put plants where we live. Mm. We can hang paintings. We can arrange our room in a way that um, invites us to um, look out the window or even just have a, a piece of furniture that just we love because it looks so beautiful. Um, we can go to museums or, or at least yeah. virtual tours. Um, there's so many ways we can intentionally invest in things that are that are beautiful and meaningful rather than just all the junk that seems mm. to fill up our lives so easily. Mm, I love that, Karen. I, I actually have a friend who sets an alarm on her phone so that every hour or so she she gets up from her desk and walks to her window just to look outside, even if it's for a couple minutes. <laughs> Just to like, I'm getting up, That's I'm stepping brilliant. away. I know, I think it's so smart. We're talking with Karen Swallow Pryor about her article at religionnews.com. Beauty is the extravagance that makes us human. Karen, you started this article with a story related to Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, that you said sold at auction for $1.17 million. And uh, someone did not respond well to that. Talk to us about how that <laughs> unfolded for you. Yeah, well, of course, Frankenstein has a special place in my heart because <laughs> earlier this year I released my own edited version of Frankenstein. I love that. Going, going back to the original 1818 version, which isn't published as often and including an introduction and notes to help readers really understand and fall in love with this wonderful novel that's just so different from from the film adaptations. And so it was fascinating and wonderful to 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 see this news that a first edition of, of the novel sold for so much, and it, it was a record for um, any novel by a woman, so that was kind mm, of neat. That's when cool. I posted the news, yeah, it is. When I posted the news on Twitter, you know, someone just responded um, that it would be easier to celebrate if there weren't so many people that were so needy and hungry and could use that money, and, um, and that just prompted this thought. I mean, of it just reminded me of when um, the woman poured the expensive perfume mm. on Jesus, and and people said that that's a waste. They should could that that perfume could have been used for something more uh, useful, um, and it was just wasted being um, poured on Jesus. And mm. you know, all beauty, in a sense, is is kind of a waste in that sense because it takes time and effort to make something look beautiful rather than just be functional. Mm. Um, and we're a very utilitarian society. We mm -hmm. just want to fulfill the function. But that is not how God created the world. It's not how he created us, as we talked about a few minutes ago. And so beauty is kind of an excess, it's an, ex it's an extravagance, but it's part of what makes us human. And so it really is important. We are more than just functional beings. We are beings who need and need beauty um, because beauty draws us to the source of all beauty. Oh, that's so good. That voice you're hearing is Karen Swallow Pryor, the research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're chatting with her about her article at Religion News Service, Beauty is the Extravagance that Makes Us Human. Karen, I, I wonder, you know, you've talked about in your own life how you appreciate beauty for people who are like, I don't know. This sounds weird. <laughs> you know, maybe art, maybe creativity is just not in them. What's one way they can just begin to stretch themselves to think a little bit about cultivating a love for beauty? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we, well, I know that we all have the capacity to be creative and to, um, and to appreciate creativity and beauty, and not in the stereotypical way that most people mean. I mean, I actually don't think of myself as that creative a person, and mm. I'm certainly not a talented singer or artist. I, I try to work on the craft of writing, but that's, that's what gives me hope and inspiration. Mm. I feel like if I can do this, anyone can. Um, and so there are just so many ways that we can, we can again, notice beauty, make room for beauty, maybe read a, a little bit more of a challenging fiction, work of fiction that we know is a, is a great work of, of literary mm. art, or see a film that challenges us mm. rather than is just kind of whatsoever is on Hallmark or Lifetime. <laughs> read, there's <laughs> there's so many good books about art and art history, some wonderful ones by good Christian writers mm. like Terry Glaspie. He's written some wonderful books mm. that can introduce Christians to the world of art and the, the background and histories of, uh, of great masterpieces. Um, but again, it just takes intention because most of our lives are filled with work, 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 and then we just want to do the mind-numbing things when we're not yes, working. So, so um, but, but we can cultivate something in between because beauty is 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 refreshing and it's a, a leisure time activity that that reinvigorates us rather than just numbing us mm. yeah and, and karen much of the premise of the article speaking about being created in the image of god it's a lot of the language we use around uh the the discussion about abortion these days and and all of that in the news and uh, Aubrey and I talked last week or the week before, whenever your article came out, you wrote a an opinion piece at the New York Times that just got widely distributed and lots of people talking about that. Uh, rather than, um, well, let me just start here. Uh, why did you feel compelled to write that in a place where most people uh, probably necessarily wouldn't handle it very well, a place like the New York Times? Why did you feel compelled uh, to write that piece at the New York Times? Well, of course, I mean, I've been passionately pro-life for most of my adult life, mm-hmm. so that's several decades now, and have spent many years, you know, wishing for and working for um, the, uh, for Roe versus Wade to, um, to be overruled, and it's just looked hopeless for a long time, yeah. and, and most laws just, uh, that our attempts at to regulate abortion get, um, get, knocked down by the by the courts and so then a few weeks ago the state of texas passed a law that's extremely controversial Mm -hmm. extremely innovative because Mm -hmm. it kind of circumvents some of the legal um already established laws around roe versus wade by allowing citizens to sue um those who provide abortions not the women who get them but those who provide abortions So it was a lot for me to wrap my mind around the idea that this here's a law that might actually have um, a chance against mm. Roe versus right, Wade, and yet right. it was so unpopular. Yeah. And so I was conflicted myself about the law, and so it was an opportunity for me to really think about, well, what is the role of the law mm. in general, um, which I think the, the main purpose of, of any society's laws is first and foremost to protect human life to protect yeah. citizens yeah. and then of course well what is human life what does it mean to be human mm. which you know i've understood for a long time even even not just as a as a christian you don't have to be a christian and believe that human beings are made in the image of god right. to know that that life begins at conception right. whether you're a human or a dog or a cat or a horse i mean all of their little lives begin when a sperm and egg unite and we can deny it and we can you know, we can rationalize around that because it's convenient, because our society is set up so that we don't want the inconvenience of, of that basic fact. Um, but this law was an opportunity for us to say not only, for me to think about not only, you know, why do I want abortion to be illegal? And why is making it illegal, illegal not enough? Mm. Why is it not enough to help the women who are making these decisions? So mm. I really did try in 900 words. <laughs> complicated question. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was a really, really well done article, Karen. I, I want to read you one of your own quotes, yeah. if that's okay. Um, you <laughs> sure. say, and the fact is that in our consumerism, individualism, and pragmatism, we live in a transactional society that gives rise to bounty hunters on the left and on the right, outside the abortion clinics and inside them too. 
We need to be people who act, not transact, for mercy, justice, and love. And love isn't love that doesn't act. I thought that was so powerful. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Well, you know, it's interesting because this really does connect back to the earlier part of our conversation. Part of what drives our, our culture's need for abortion to the extent that so many um, pregnancies are willingly ended in abortion is that we, we are a consumeristic and individualistic culture. And, you know, we just want what we want. And we, and I, I say this about myself, I have my plans and don't upset <laughs> my plans mm-hmm. um, and don't inconvenience me. Maybe yeah. this is something that I struggle with. But our whole culture is set up that way, that it leaves so little room for the unexpected, for the surprises, for, the, for those who need us, for, for dependence um, on each other. And, you know, and, and that's the kind of lifestyle that also doesn't make room for beauty. And, mm. and life is beautiful. Yeah. Life is hard, but it's really beautiful. And mm. we just, I think, don't recognize that enough. That's great. And Karen, I guess I'll end here. Uh, I love your Twitter account, so people should follow you on Twitter. You, Like you said, you frequently tweet, but it's always stuff that gets me thinking or encouraging. But if people aren't aware of Twitter, when you go to someone's page, they can pin a tweet, right? Like It's kind of like the one that stays there forever. And yours is from like <laughs> six years ago, and it's just the fruit of the Spirit verse. It's just the fruit of the Spirit. And people do that for a reason, right? You choose the tweet to pin. I'm wondering why you chose that one to stay there for the last <laughs> six years. Well, I, 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 that, I made that tweet and then pinned it to the top um, when I was facing um, some pretty brutal and horrible attacks from, mm. from within the church, from mm. people who were misrepresenting me and attacking me. And, and people were, you know, people were confused about who I was and what I believed because there were so many lies and distortions spread around. And I just, I realized, you know, the evidence of Christ in us is is this. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible says so. And so I did that, you know, just more as a reminder to myself because it's so easy for me to defend myself or attack back in the flesh mm. when I know that my best defense is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in me and that when I see others who are displaying that Spirit, I know that we, even if we disagree on things, um, but that fruit of the Spirit is the thing that is that is the evidence, really, of, of Christ in us. So oh, I need that reminder every day. We <laughs> all need that reminder. Karen, thank you for that. That's such a good word. Karen, thanks so much for being here with us today. We always love having you on The Common Good. Well, I love being on. Thank you. Thank you. You can learn more about Karen Swallow Pryor and her work at KarenSwallowPryor.com. You can connect with her on Twitter, like Brian was just mentioning, at KS Pryor. And thanks, everyone, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. right here. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.